Jelani, what's up, my man? Good to How's see you. How's it going? You. Oh, so good. sorry I'm late. Apologies for that. No sweat, man. No sweat. It's good to have you here. Thanks for making the time. I know you've been doing a lot of these podcasts. Yeah, it's, um, been, it's been quite full, but uh, good. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, but also prime time to really get the message out. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. All right, yeah. man. You good? How are you doing? See you. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, you know, best best that I, be, I can in these um, in these times. Uh, moved back to sure. New York. I was home in Connecticut for the past like three months. Uh, that's where we did our Zoom. That was really nice. It was unbelievable, actually. And it it was nice. It's nice when you're in something and you you know it's good. Like you know, sometimes you look back and yeah. like, oh, that was a good time. And this is like looking back <laughs> at my time at home. I was like, in it, I was like, this is great. I'm quarantined. I'm locked down at home. I'm like having the best time with my family, bought a bunch of board games. Yeah. And we're like, they're great people, oh, awesome. you know? Yeah. It was, yeah, it was yeah, fun. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So it was, awesome. it was, it's good. And now I'm back in New York and uh, things are starting to pick up. Things are starting to open up again. Um, yeah. Gigs and, uh, and also like just production slowly. So um, it's keeping me, you know, it's keeping me busy. I'm off to the, I'm doing a little road trip with some friends in, in two weeks. We'll be going to the Midwest. Ah, fun. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. it would be good. Um, but I, yeah, so let's, I mean, yeah, I want to jump right into it with you and, uh, and get well, things cooking, rocking and rolling. And, uh, well, the, I mean, like I said, the last time we did see each other was, well, you were hosting this and it was a, uh, <laughs> a one day workshop to create a book debunking every yeah. type of myth that I ever had about writing a book, you know, taking months and months, sitting down, thinking, rewriting, and then going down a publishing route, I would, it's so overwhelming. And I'm sure so many people who could relate to this idea of where they have a story to tell, they have a, a message to share and they get so scared off by the process that they don't even start. And, you know, within, within six, seven hours, bam, first draft is done. And there's a kid's book about <laughs> optimism being made um, just after all that. That's, that's, that's insane. That's insane. Um, but I, I want to jump into about kids, kids book about and, and the project that we did. But before I do, you wrote the first book about a kid's book about, which is about racism. Yeah. And, yeah. And take me, take me back to the inspiration behind um, that specific topic and how you came about thinking like this could be a good way of sharing it. You know, there's so many different avenues to share, to share a subject. What made you share it in this particular way? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I, when I came up with the idea for that book, the, the ambition was incredibly small. It was sort of two things coupled together. One, I wanted to do a personal project outside of work for the summer in 2018 that, um, that was going to be creatively fulfilling. So, right. So checkbox one, that was sort of, that was a part of the, the genesis of doing the book. And the other one was, I, I wanted it to matter for my kids. Um, and so, Lo and behold, I land on this little kids book idea. And, you know, originally it was, it was going to be just a little bit of autobiography as my sort of story as a, a, a biracial person or a person of color. And then I just sort of, I, I wrote a little draft. And I was like, oh, this is like, this feels like it's not getting to the point. What's the point of this thing? And it's like, the point of this thing is my, my entire life has been marked by, by racism in a number of ways. And I think ways that often surprise people who've been in my life for a while and go, I had no idea. Um, and I just didn't want my kids to grow up with that sense of, um, 
surprise, I suppose. And, and we were already having conversations about racism, but I thought, what better way than to capture all those conversations inside of a book and, and let the through line be my story. And so, you know, the original title was The Kid's Book About Racism. And I was like, that sounds really pretentious. So I, I crossed out of that and put an A and I was like, okay, that, that's good. And I, 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 you know, it took me a couple of nights, uh, you know, across a week to, to write it and another couple of nights to design it. Like, re- I mean, just really fast. Like, it, I, zero ambition. I only ever thought my kids were going to see it and, and printed one copy. And I was, I was so pleased with how my kids received it. Zero fear, zero uncomfortability. They were like, this is so cool, dad. This is awesome. Um, and they were like, can I make a book too? And I was like, yeah, awesome. And and quite genuinely, that's where it should have ended, but it didn't end there. Now, now I find myself here making a lot more books. But uh, that's amazing. I mean, you're, and you mentioned your your kids, and, and you have you have black and white kids, right? You have um, yeah. on both sides of the spectrum. How does that conversation take place in the household? Like, what is it? Does it is it differ? Does it differ? Do you pull each you know them to the side and talk about different angles of the topic? How does one go about doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me explain what's the same and then I'll explain what's different. What's the same is that we make it very open to talk about race in our family. So to refer to somebody as a black person or a white person or an Asian person is completely fine. Um, the, the attachment onto that is that we don't attach judgment, right? We don't go, Ooh, gosh, black people. Oh, right. Like it, which yeah. is, it, which sounds really obvious, but I think the fear for most people, especially most parents is to go, to even mention race is somehow racist and, and it's mm. not, it turns out it's not. Um, yeah. turns out actually being colorblind kind of racist. Um, so we're very open about that. And then, and then that creates a context to talk about differences in experience because of race. And for my white kids, it's helping them understand the, experiences they won't experience firsthand, but that their siblings will experience and ones that they'll see at school and out and about and through history. Um, so having that, again, different at age levels, how that conversation looks. And then for my, my brown kids, look, I mean, I've got, I've got one, one year old who we're, we're not really having that conversation because he's one, yes. um, but I've got uh, a nine year old and that's a, a very specific conversation and one that I didn't actually have to start. It, it just organically started as soon as she started you know, pre-K, like four or three years old. Like, she initiated. Did she? Is that you? Do you find that's the age in which children start getting conscious of their skin color and start asking such questions? I I do. I think that's the age, but I think that's the age for kids of color. Um, okay. I, which is really when they have enough language to even describe things. Um, but it's uh, interesting for- though, because like, what what prompts them to to do that? If like. At that age, are they experiencing racism already? At that, like at three, four years old, like a white. Yes, <laughs> I mean, yes, that is the best way to put it. And, and this might surprise some folks, but the reality is, is the experience of people of color are just is just fundamentally different. Um, and what happens is when you get a a person of color, a brown person, a black person in a room that even is let's say half white people, they start to notice the differences, and they it's really really subtle. Um, and and it, it's and so for funny. example, how so? Uh, I mean, the different well, the differences in skin color, the differences in who sits with who, the differences in who's considered pretty and not pretty and cool and not cool. Um, you know, the fact that often most times their teachers are going to be white instead of instead of looking like them, right? And so they start to internalize this, 
And then, and then it just takes one or two comments from a kid to go, why is your hair so curly, you know, or why is your skin look dirty or, you know, where are you from? Right. Um, which right. all assume a number of things, some, some of them dangerous and some of them very innocent. And yet, you know, your, right. your kid will come home just like mine did and, and say, am I black? Like, what is, what does that mean? Right. Um, as a, as a three-year-old, right? right. <laughs> I mean, that's, like, that's, that's, that is pretty crazy. Yeah. To um, Do you remember your first time? Do you remember your first time when you experienced um, racism in your own life? You know, I, my, my memories are really foggy, you know, anything under six. I, I distinctly remember, because look, I, I, I went to mostly white schools all through, you know, grade school, middle school, high school, and even college. Um, and so I was always one of a couple black kids in the class, if that, mm-hmm. so I was very aware of my difference. Um, and it didn't have to come out and people like outright calling me like, you know, the N word or something like that. Um, I, gosh, I, I don't even know if I can pinpoint a single time, uh, that was the first time other than I can't think of a time that it didn't exist. Does yeah. that make sense? It does make sense. I guess it's, it's always, it's so constantly there. It's always something you're conscious of. Yeah. Um, it's all, and it's always something that um, other folks will make you conscious of. Right. So it's not like, I'm like, Ooh, I'm a person of color. I have to magically navigate all these situations and, and mm-hmm. do the right thing. It's like, Oh no, for, people are forcing me to navigate these situations because it keeps coming up. And it's not just every once in a while. It's like all the time. Okay. And then you start to not just build some thick skin, but you also start to negotiate situations and, and as you get older, it's, it's this sort of what I'll call the, the blackness meter, right? Like how black can I be in this room or how black should I be? Mm. Which is really about for the other people, not for myself. And, and let me clarify that. Yeah. Yeah. Break that down for, for me. For, for white individuals, if I'm entering into their life, oftentimes I'll be one of few, if maybe the only black person that they're encountering directly in relationship, whether that's a student or friendship or whatever. So now that, that pressure, imagine if you only knew one female, like growing up, right? You'd yeah. foist upon that person, everything about what it means to be female. Right. And that would be a lot of pressure and all the stereotypes and everything in between. Cause you wouldn't have any else things else to go on that for people of color is often like that. So for me, it was like, Oh, like you have to sort of deal with the stereotypes, the, you know, the language uh, and, and, and navigate it in such a way where it's like, you're both trying to make sure that you are slightly trying to disappear into the background so that it's not always the topic of conversation, but you're also not like trying to like ruin it for the race, right? <laughs> like you right. don't want to like, it's a big responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And imagine, you know, being at, you know, just like a sleepover. It's like a lot of pressure. Cause you're like, you are, you are the, the symbol of what it means to be black at the sleepover. So if you get too angry, if you throw something, if you, if you win at games, if you lose yeah. at games, that means black people like lose at video games, right? Like, right. And again, I feel that, that, I feel that right. It, it show up in any, any type of situation. I, I, I hear that. Um, the, have you been many a time the token black guy in a group? And Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How's that, how's that make you feel? Is that, is that fun? Is that like, cause I see in pop culture is always that, you know, there's memes about it. There's this yeah. show. There's the guy, right. Um, yeah. How's that land? You know, for me, it's really interesting. Cause, cause I have always had black friends. Uh, they have just uh, typically not been the same friends that my other friends have had, my white friends have had. Right. Um, and so 
and, and I've lived all, like our city, the best way to describe it is very segregated, right? The black people live in one part of town and the white people live in all the rest of the parts of town. It's just basically how it goes. And there's very few exceptions really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I grew up in the black part of town, you know, we moved over to the white part of town. One, you know, like I went to, I went to high school with like a couple thousand kids. And it's one of like four black students, maybe. Wow. Um, wow. Right. So not diverse at all. So when black, like a black history month came about, like, would you guys like were called up to the, to the oh, class? I'm like, Oh, black. These, these, it's these it's are... the worst. Right. Cause you're like, you're sort of shrinking going like, Oh no, like this is, yeah. this is the month where it's like, <laughs> I, I was able to just like be a normal black person. Now it's like, I got to elevate. Right. And yeah, man, that's, that is crazy. Is that, is black, when it came to black history, month, which, which is, I think it's a, a source of pride and remembrance and such like, so you did you sort of dread for that month did it it just came with a lot, yeah. lot of pressure yeah it came with a lot of pressure it came with like like racism would amp up during that month right yeah. so you were more likely to be called the n-word during black history month than any other time which huh. sounds crazy yeah and i will tell you and this is really important i think for folks who have black friends is there's a sense i think that if i've got a black friend racism with that friend is kind of funny and i I can just tell you it is not funny <laughs> as, <laughs> as simple as I can say that um, where, where you watch friends sort of feel free about using racial jokes and you're like, Hmm, like either I'm the guy who's like a big Debbie downer. Cause I'm like, Hey, that's not cool. Yeah. And I'm putting his, I'm, I'm made to feel like the bad guy. Cause I'm like, that's uncomfortable that, that, that I don't feel right about that. Um, and then you get, of course, the pattern, like, Oh, it's just a joke, man. Like whatever. Right. That's true. Like, so when it comes to comedy, like you, I mean, there are, comedians going up talking about race they're talking about they, they cross the line on all these like you know topics you're not supposed to talk around the dinner table so like where where could one draw the line is that just common sense is that something you just feel a vibe or you're saying there's certain lines that can't be crossed uh, uh, look there are different lines for different contexts and friendship is, is a context that should be full of, of vulnerability and trust and love and care not tearing down somebody at, at their expense, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's a difference between joshing around and taking an experience that is not your own and, 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 and being unaware of their experience with that thing and poking at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, That's like true. probably not a good look to take your female friend and joke about sexual assault if they've ever been sexually assaulted, right? Like that's an obvious one. And yet somehow race sort of skips by this thing like, oh, it's cool, we're friends, right? It's like, no, it's not cool. And this makes us less friends. In comedy, I think it, it has a lot to do with the comedian and, and their, their moral authority, if you will, to be able to speak from first, ex, first person experience and, and to be able to make light of something that is either funny or horrible or awful or okay. And, and that it's, it has a lot to do with power dynamics. Like race always has to, like racism specifically has to do with power dynamics. And you just don't want the person, you know, a comedian punching down. Like that's, it just never yeah. rings right. Right. Totally. Uh, and like for you, I'm sure you've made jokes that like if other folks made through their videos, you would be like, whoa, like step, you can't, you can't do that. Cause it's something about it coming from you feels right. very like odd, from, right? from the, from, from the culture, from the perspective, from the context. Yeah. It's be mindful of that. Yeah. And of course there's all these like, you know, I guess unspoken rules where it's, it's like, Okay, this is this is kosher, so to speak, if it's coming from a certain person, some certain individual, and not so if it comes from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I don't know what the rule book is there, um, 
but but I, I I know to it's always important not to assume somebody else's experience, and especially for people of color. Um, you know, like what I've described so far is that sort of racism is like water. I've been swimming in it my whole life. Um, mm. So the idea of somebody making light of that as if it's like, you know, quaint or, or racism is really about just like that one time I got followed in a supermarket and like, that's my story. It's like, nope, I wish that were my story, but it's far more prevalent and far more frequent. Wow. The, did you experience racism or like, how to identify being that you're mixed so white black did you feel like you weren't white enough you weren't black enough at times did you feel like you ever got it from both sides of the coin oh sure 100 percent. although i'd say for as i think back through my experience um that never quite felt the case from black friends black individuals um there was a far more acceptance of just let me be Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I think that's because there's an understanding amongst people of color to go like, there's all different kinds of us. There's not just like one kind for white individuals. There's often like there's Jay-Z and, it, and you're either you're like Jay-Z or you're not like Jay-Z. Right. Yeah. Oh, it sounds really reductive. And yet um, I still, I still in my job as a publisher in my job as an entrepreneur in my job as a dad, um, you know, I will walk into rooms and there's like this, Oh, like, I didn't know you were going to show up. Like, this is interesting. How did you get here? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this is interesting. And oh then, uh, which sounds crazy. And it's, again, it's not, it's not that outward, but I've been in enough rooms and been the only black person to know I am a novelty there. I am a curiosity. I am sort of like a, you know, like, wow. Almost like you must be really good if you got in this room because I've never seen anybody who looks like you in this room. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is, disheartening sad uh you know then it's like gosh does that mean are they complimenting me like yeah it's like it's like sort of a passive aggressiveness type of like compliment like well done you you know you you're above above, above it all well and then just just uh, like the worst part i think and this is it's it's an unconscious thing that individuals do but they go they're like oh, I didn't, I, you know, I, I wasn't paying attention to whether you were like a black entrepreneur. You're like, you're just a person. Like, you're just, you're just a human. I just, human. that's all I saw when you came in the room. And it's like, okay, you don't have, you don't have to go that far because I'm, I'm still a black person. Like, it's okay to recognize me as a black person. That's okay. Yeah. Um, don't, don't strip me of that bit to somehow treat me like now I belong in this room if you just take away that one part. You know what I'm so I was going to segue into that. She's actually a beautiful segue because I was going to say that there are, I've heard from just you know from the videos that have been circulating and such from yeah. the interviews uh, from people from the like the black community coming forth and saying you know it may be smarter to not talk about it why have a Black History Month is there a, a history other history months for every other type of sect or race putting the focus on it always bringing to the forefront of conversation continues to make it exist if perhaps we like stripped it away we did just look at people as from place of character and not race or skin color mm. then that would be it would be eradicated. Yeah, uh, I can tell you that's wrong. <laughs> Just, yeah. Here's why. Here's why. Um, uh, the, the danger in, in color blindness, um, which is what I'll call that, the danger in that, um, to essentially go, if we stop pointing out all the differences between each other, we just all treat each other like humans. And it's about love and it's about respect. Like I've heard that so many times. And the problem is, is it ignores the differences in experience, right? Um, and so it just assumes, it assumes life is fair. 
it assumes life is a meritocracy that the most qualified person will get the job or get the role or get the whatever. Um, and that wealth is evenly distributed if you just work hard. Um, and that also the, the, the literal history of our country has been identical for every single kind of individual, especially different races. And none of those things are true. Like none of those things are true historically or presently. And so the moment we go, it's really just about love and respect and character. We deny people the recognition of the suffering they faced of the inequalities they still face, of the systems in place that are actually that disadvantage them and advantage other people. And I here's here's why I think people go there, just going, let's just make this about character and love and respect and all those good sure. things and not divisions, is because they've never found themselves in a place where they're disadvantaged by any of these things, right? So they're just going, well, you know, I, I see people and I want somebody to judge me based on my character. So why I want to do that with other people. And it and it it misses, I think, something big because those individuals they've never experienced that firsthand. So it's almost like it doesn't exist those inequalities, which is why like this press tour, if you will, that I'm doing yeah. of chatting with so many folks is to sort of go. And my book, at its core, with my kids is to go, hey, racism exists, and it doesn't always show up how you think it's going to show up. It, it's not just like the guys with the hoods and the crosses. It's a lot more subtle than that. And just to like peek open the door just a little bit so people go, huh, yeah, yeah, maybe I don't know everything and I should start to just listen a little more and key in to some of those experiences that are not like mine. Truly, I, I, I definitely hear that. And, um, and I'll be honest with you and, and come clean in the sense that I've, I've actually used that terminology, love is colorblind, um, mm-hmm. at, 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 at a point. And, um, and for me, it was, I was coming from a place of, of like of unity of like of 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 connection of of an idea and you know i would say god willing a reality in which you know not not to look back in the in history and say that stuff didn't exist or whatnot but rather saying like the i truly believe in these principles that like love and respect are not subjugated to just one person or a type of person a sure. race or an idea but to everybody and to um and that and that includes everybody and shouldn't and shouldn't be used as a as a guard or used as a as a weapon or or on some sort of pedestal, but just by all for all and it can't be tainted. It's something that it's something that you that no one has a monopoly on, so no one can either give it or take it away or say it's for this person or that person. So it was just like this universal felt like a nice idea. Um, but it, I'll be when I yeah then as things circulate, people wrote back and people were into it, people weren't into it, and it, it did make me think and make me a bit more open my mind and say, wait a second, what's going on here? But is, is it safe to say, I'm trying, maybe trying to dig myself out of this hole now, but, no, I, okay. but, <laughs> but uh, I'm learning as I go, uh, that, that, that there is that idea of like saying, what coming out saying that is not, I'm not saying taking away anybody's experiences from the past or what they have to go through to get to, to get anything, any, anything that perhaps other people have privilege of, but uh, to say that, it's, it's this focus of looking forward and that this, this is essentially meant and should be given and received by everybody. And, and, and that thing being the, the love. Yeah. Being the love, being a, a, a respect for one another. Um, and so hence saying colorblind. Yeah. I, I, I think the important part is, um, 
you know, there's something underlying the idea of colorblindness that I think is really insidious that often is missed. Um, so yes, I, I think all people are deserving of love and uh, equally deserving, right? Um, no matter race, color, creed, religion, status, ability, you name it, right? Gender. Um, but this idea of identity and difference, what ends up happening is, is uh, individuals who, who haven't been disadvantaged by their identity um, end, up, end up wanting to go, I'm going to treat everybody like they're me, um, an undisadvantaged person, and just go, it's just, I'm just going to make it about your character. I'm going to ignore all those other parts of your identity because identity shouldn't matter because identity doesn't advantage or disadvantage anybody in any way. So I'm going to treat them just like me, which is, if I may go so far as to say, I think it is often to, to treat individuals as if they are valuable. I'm going to treat them as if they are white males. And that's like a really like charged Mm. statement, but let me unpack that for a little bit. The, the reality is, is when we say, love is colorblind or let's, let's, let's say it a different way. Love is ability blind. Okay. What happens is, is if I'm a walking person, not a wheelchair bound person with a disability, I'm now, I'm, I'm just going to go, I love you, man. Like, I I don't care. I don't care that you're in that chair. And by saying, I don't care that you're in that chair, I'm I'm also going to ignore it. I'm blind to it, which also means the ways that I work out my love practically are in ignorance of that chair. So the buildings that I build, the classrooms that I create, right? The sports that I design and play and invite you into, right? Imagine being a person in a wheelchair and it's like, hey, we're going to go climbing tomorrow. Yeah. Do you want, do you want to come? Like, and it's like, I don't, right, well, I don't see you in that chair. Yeah, I don't see you in that chair. It's like, well, and imagine, imagine being that person, how defeating, how, how insignificant that might make you feel, how much something that's a part of your identity has been cast off and cast off in such a way where two things are happening. One, that person with that ability is basically saying like, I don't care about your disability, um, nor will I try and make this inclusive to you because of it, because I'm just going to treat you like you're me when we both know you're not like me. And I don't mean that as a better, I mean, as a difference. And we have become so obsessed with this idea that we must all be the same to have unity. I think that's a lie. I agree. I think those differences are what make that unity beautiful, right? So we don't become colorblind. We actually, we all at once recognize color and ability and difference more and embrace it, right? We don't attach judgment to it or otherness. We, we, get, we welcome it in. We, all, we realize there's so much more we can get from each other when we have those differences, right? Like that's beautiful. That's a beautiful picture. That is the exact opposite of colorblindness. Got that. Got that. That's, um, that's a, that's a really great distinction. And that's also the, the premise of your, of the book, um, against book about racism, which I think you do in a beautiful job in which I highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't given it a read and, and, uh, and to look it up and, and definitely purchase it. But you build up in a very simple, but profound way, what racism, what racism is. And then you focus on 
the idea of what you just mentioned, which is it's so about being different. And sometimes mm-hmm. you get afraid about about difference and what we don't know, uh, but it's actually what makes us all unique, right? It makes us all special. It makes us all beautiful. A rainbow would be pretty boring if it was just one color, you know? Yeah. It's um, It brings a lot of personality to it. So what is a... What would you say is something most people seem to misunderstand about racism? Colorblindness is definitely at the top of the list. Uh, You know, one rank down from that probably is a sense that racism is only personal actions that I take with the intent to demean someone because of their skin color. Um, I I wish that were all that racism was, Um, you know, uh, racism. It's, uh, let me step back. What's happening in our country now is this awakening around going, how did we, how did this problem get so bad? Right? Like something about George Floyd's murder, just like it lit a fire where now all these people who I think were, weren't thinking about race and racism or police brutality or unequal systems or any of that are now going, wait a second. Like, how did I miss all this? Like this, something's wrong about where things are at. I don't know everything, but I know that something's wrong. Right. And so they're doing this journey of, of research and finding and understanding and growth and learning and listening. And I think the, the thing that I get most pushback about is, is the idea that racism was not only embedded in the foundation of the United States and its founding, like literally the constitution contained it. Um, but as, as, like continued to exist and proliferate and seep into every system. Um, And that like, that it's sort of everywhere. And that sounds like a really like dramatic, like, Oh, I'm going to play my huge person of color victim card and say, you know, racism's everywhere. We've got to dismantle everything. But what I mean by that is like, you would, you would just literally not like have to ignore everything about our country's history and its past, which, which we've tried to do a lot of work to ignore those things to not go like that people of color, that women haven't gotten a fair shake. You know what I mean? Um, And not just for like for a couple of years, but like for hundreds of years, like very intentionally. And that it doesn't just take it. Like this doesn't just go away in a generation, right? It doesn't just like, Oh, you know, I like listening to MTV now. And so I'm totally going to like not do what my parents did. Like, it just doesn't work like that, you know? No, absolutely. And so it's deeply ingrained into many, you know, in the subconscious and how things are done. And and there have been many generations in which, you know, certain people have gotten certain advantages and and mentalities and dreams and aspirations are just so shifted in what one can achieve or do and how we view things in other people. Yeah, yeah. To the point now where... I believe, and again, sort of bold statement here, that one of the most insidious forms of racism in our country is is the idea that it doesn't exist at all. all right. right. So, so that's you going back to the answering pretty much what, um, which was spoken on these interviews. One person being Morgan Freeman and such that like don't talk about it. It's like wait a second, talk about it. It's it's important to talk about it. Yeah. And it's only through that perhaps that the dialogue can take place. And then we could just see for what it is, difference, and embrace it and move forward. Yeah, it's, I, I'm trying to think of a, a, a large enough analogy or analogous situation, um, but it is, it is, it's like a pure denial 
of, of the fact that, you know, our founding fathers owned, tortured, enslaved, um, like, you know, caged individuals solely because they were a different color. I mean, just like, it's crazy, you know, like it, and I think the part that's so hard for people to wrap their heads around is like, it just forces you to rewrite everything you thought about America and our history and your heroes, you know, like, mm. and that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a oh, hard thing. That's a really conversation. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very uncomfortable. And so I think a lot of folks just go, I reject that outright. Like I just go, you can't take away my heroes. Do you and, think also a part of that is, is that it, 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 it sort of spills over to who they think they are and it makes them feel guilty. It makes them yeah. feel shameful. Yeah, 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 or, yeah, yeah. But they may perhaps block it with like this. Yeah. Ah, so, so point number three then is that racism isn't about you, white person, right? <laughs> like, uh, like I will, like I will watch white people pick up my book and there's this fear that somehow if they just open it, it's going to be like that moment in, in Raiders where they open up the Ark of the Covenant. It's like, you know, like, that somehow it's it's going to expose the the racist white person in them, right? It'll be a mirror. Yeah, it'll be a mirror. And I and I just go, why does this story? Why did my story have to be about you? It's not about you. It's about me, mm-hmm. right? And and I I think it's it's around like this uncomfortability for white people about talking about race is to go maybe when this conversation comes up, it's not about you and your feelings and your guilt. And I and I've had a really uh, you know, a bunch of handful of candid conversations with friends to go, don't, don't spend all your time feeling guilty and feeling bad and feeling like, what can I do? You've all of a sudden done a very bad thing, which is you've made the situation about you. Now, somebody else's oppression is about you feeling better about yourself. Don't do that. Go when you see something wrong or bad or awful, go like, do you activate yourself to go, I'm going to go do something about that. Right. Um, if it has nothing to do with you and feeling guilty, like, like feel guilty for a couple of seconds, like get over that and, and do the thing that you would tell your friend to do or your kid to do, or your, you know, your parent, to, like, it's so obvious to me, but I think there's this fear of going like, because I didn't know I feel bad and I feel guilty. And, and now what can I do to take this guilt away um, and it ends up finding itself in really strange behaviors where it's like, that's not helping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does seem like there is a lot of conversation that when it takes place, it, it, it sort of diverts to like, what about us? Or, you know, there's, um, it, it, it shifts is where, where the focus is on where it's, and, and I, I don't think there's what you don't know, you don't know. And this moment forward, you know, you could just show up and be supportive of, yeah. of someone else's, you know, struggles or what they're going against and, uh, and just learn about it and, and be there and yeah. ask questions and don't make it weird. Yeah. And empathy, I think is, is the strongest and, and best word for it, you know, is feel with somebody instead of just for it. Don't pity them. You know what I mean? Yeah. You feel with them alongside them, which is, is, you know, uh, you know, one of our other authors, you know, Darren, he wrote a kid's book about empathy and he said, you know, empathy looks like using more question marks than periods. And I love that, Mm. you know, asking questions, how did that make you feel? You know, what was that like? What can I do? Right. 
as opposed to going, that's awful. Here's what happened to me too. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> totally relate. Da, da, da. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's, it's, people do like talking about themselves, but it's, 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 listen, I think it's changing a lot, a lot of dialogue and how people think and how, and how they react. And yeah. ultimately it's, yeah, it, it is truly about, um, about practicing empathy and, and showing up for, for a fellow in, you know, in, in the struggle of what's taking place now. Yeah. If I can add one more point, a point number four, yeah, is that somebody else's struggle does not diminish your own. Oh, um, I think there's a sense now of going like, well, wait a second, like black people got a month and now they got like this black lives matter. Like, what about me? Like, what about my stuff? And it's sort of like, none of that ever went away. Like, it's okay. It's okay. You, you still have thoughts and feelings and hurts and, and pains. And there, just because this is an issue right now, it does not mean it's the only issue. But it also doesn't mean like trash it because it's somehow not being equal enough for all the issues that could be brought up in this moment right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and I, 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 I watched the same thing happen with the Me Too movement where, you know, a bunch of dudes were like, well, like we've had it hard too. It's like, this is not the time to do that, man. Like, it's just not. <laughs> exactly. exactly. This is the conversation. <clears throat> And, uh, and that's, and that's, uh, that's what we got to focus on. But that's, that's also a very important, important topic. Um, Jelani, let me ask you, you, you do talk about how you're, um, you're raising your kids with this unwavering honesty, right? Like you talk about, you just yeah. have these conversations. Is that something that you grew up with in your own home? Is that something that like, your parents had with you or just the opposite? And you, you want to build this kind of communication with your own kids? Yeah, it would be the latter, just the opposite. Um, we didn't talk about anything in my home growing up. And when I mean anything, nothing. It didn't matter how big or how small it was. We didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about why my, why my dad left, why my parents got a divorce. You know, uh, uh, how do people get pregnant? You know, <laughs> when, my, when my sister got pregnant at 15 and I was 14. Um, uh, we didn't talk about sex. We didn't talk about dating. We didn't talk. I was just none of it. Right. Um, and, uh, I got to practice being a, a parent to my nieces and nephews growing up. And that started at age 14, you know, through nine nieces and nephews later, lots of practice before I ever had my own kid. And I just, I just wanted to get it right. Uh, it's as simple as that. And one of the things I, I, I wished I had when I was a kid was those conversations was talking about something that I, that I, I knew I could handle it. So I just decided that I was going to talk to my kids about stuff and you try it once and twice at really early ages. And you're like, Oh, that worked. Like, let's just keep doing this. Like what else can we talk about that is just basically off limits. And once you sort of do that experiment enough times, you realize, Oh, like the only reason why these conversations don't happen is because the parents are afraid to. And that fear is real. I don't want to downplay that fear. I still have that fear about things going, Ooh, what do I say? Yeah. Like, how do you, you know, get, what, how do you get, how do you get past that? What are some things that a parent could do if they, when they feel that, that fear take over them, they get a little overwhelmed. How could they step uh, into that? So my, my two pieces of advice, start somewhere. doesn't matter where you start, but start somewhere. Right. And then do it frequently and often. Right. Because the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. And the more you'll push in a little bit. Like, you know, my big thing with people when talking about racism with their kids is like, don't try and like explain slavery and the civil rights movement and Malcolm X. Don't try and do all that at once. It's not going to work, right? You're not going to know enough stuff and your kid's going to go, why, what are we talking about, right? It's not going to make any sense. Start like at the smallest place and then move forward from there. So that it's the first of many conversations. Don't try and end the conversation the very first time. 
I think it's about getting those reps, right? Like mm-hmm. the more you do it, the more com- the more you go, this actually isn't that scary. My kid's more thoughtful and they're not afraid. And now we're talking about it at bedtime, you know, like, uh, like literally the other night I, my, I was putting down two of my kiddos, my, my 10 and 11 year old. And, uh, my wife walks in the room and she's like, what are you guys talking about? And I was like, Oh, we're talking about the coronavirus death rate and, uh, you know, wearing masks and vaccines. <laughs> Only she, in the memory house. Yeah. She's like, oh. <laughs> you know, uh, Johnny's at it again. I just, I, I won't lose that opportunity to have a teachable moment. And it turns out every time my kids can handle it. They can totally handle it. And my kids are not special. They're not magical kids with somehow like special. Hope your kids are listening to this podcast. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're just, they're just kids, right? They're just like every other kid, which is beautiful. Cause they're not like adults. Adults are full of so much baggage that the idea of talking about any of this stuff is so uncomfortable that they'd rather just avoid it until they die. Right? And what is it? Kid, adults are just really kids, you know, screwing up. And I think a lot of it is because they didn't have these conversations so yeah. not as adults, but like if you, if you get it in a butt in, in, in early on, then yeah. that could transform as a more healthier communicated yeah. adult. I think so. It, you know, there's also that resp- responsibility adults have to not screw up their kids, like to not break them. Right. And yeah. that, that's also a really real feeling. Like, you know, I'll watch my kids and I'll just like watch them go through the kitchen. And I'm like, don't grab that knife. Oh, don't go near that thing. Oh, you might knock over that thing. It's like, you feel all those feelings. Right. Cause you're like, if I'm not here, they will kill themselves. Like it will not go well. <laughs> um, it's true. And so you almost take that same sort of fear into conversation to go, Oh my gosh, if like, if I don't tell them this thing now, if I wait for it till later then this will happen, this will happen. And all of a sudden you're like, you're frozen. Right. You right. brought but too much it- into it. But is there is there a is there a line or is there a moment where certain topics would be healthier to discuss? For example, perhaps you know um, you know for example, sex. Right? Sex is not we don't talk about sex. You don't have the talk. You know, when you're five, you have that talk. Um, when you're what, fourteen, thirteen, twelve, fifteen, whatever, in, you know, in the teens. Uh, I disagree. <laughs> oh, so we should respect the kids' book about it, sex soon. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, my daughter Ella. So look, I, I I got remarried. So you know, some of my kids I haven't been there for their whole entire lives. Sorry, I'm just you know mobile here. Yes, sure. Plugged in. Um, and there we go. Boom. Interesting. I, I, I was coming in strong. I was confident that I had that argument. But hey, man, tell me, tell me where when 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 are you going to start talking about sex with your kids? Yeah. So uh, I'll give you an example with Ella. I started that conversation at five years old. Um, and because she was smart enough to go, Hey dad, where do babies come from? Mm. And right. What's, what's the yeah, normal no. parent thing to do? You know, start talking about storks or when a mommy loves a daddy yeah. or, yeah. you know, you could even go so far as like artificial insemination, but then that's like too complicated. So it's like, you just start euphemizing like all the things that you don't want to say, right? <laughs> like we literally call it the we birds. Get so and the creative bees. and imaginative. Like, what does a bird and a bee have to do with any of that stuff, right? Um, and so I said, I said, well, and I and I just we had the conversation, and she goes, I don't understand. And so I said, okay. And so I got out a you know a little notebook and I started drawing diagrams of boy parts, girl parts. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay. And I was like, and then here's how they fit together. And now I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little out of my scope of what I know. I'm like, okay, ovaries, okay, so like the egg. And I think, I think the sperm goes in the egg. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Yeah. I'm drawing all this. She's five, by the way. Wow. 
Wow. And <laughs> I bet there's some parents right now who are just like, they're like cringing, you know, like what? Yeah. What I'm, I'm not going to say it wasn't uncomfortable, but also wasn't inappropriate. I don't, I don't know how else to say that. Like, it's like, you know, when we got done, she's like, thanks dad. Like, and it, at any time she could have said, you know what, dad, I don't, I don't like this conversation anymore. And I don't want to have it. Um, I can tell you most times it is not the kid who says that it is always the parent who starts the conversation in that place who says, this is inappropriate. I'll tell you when you're older, you wouldn't understand. And what they mean is we will tar- start talking about sex once you are having sex and have learned everything you need to know about it. That's not from me. Right. It's like, this is such a foolish time to start that conversation. Cause by that time your kid doesn't want to have, they want to hear anything from you, right? Like nothing. And in fact, there's a, there's sort of like the side effect, which is they don't think you know anything, right? Yeah. Like, because you don't talk to them about it. They, they don't think, actually think, you know, it. they think you're square and stupid. And you know, like my kids are like, Oh, like, have you ever heard of TikToks? Like, yeah, I know about TikTok. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? like, uh, like I almost, I, I want to prove that I like, I know some stuff, you know what I mean? Um, right, that's true. And then like, have you ever heard of a meme? Thing? It's like, get out of here. <laughs> right. Right. It's so true. Yeah. And, and it's funny when like, yeah, when like friends of mine just start popping like, or like younger, like Nick nephews just start like naming movies. from so like, I'm like, Yes, I've seen them. But that being said, like, aren't, isn't there a fear? Of, like, well, I, I think I know the answer. You, you don't have this fear. But just to bring it up, because possibly it's in the mind of some people listening, is that when you're interacting and you're, you're drawing these, fo- these pictures of, of penises and vaginas and showing yeah. how the process is done, are you afraid that they'll try to experiment that maybe be- before a, a mature time? Like, oh, this is interesting. And that could yeah. be... Yeah. And, and, and so this is where this is, I do have a belief that there are things that are appropriate and that are inappropriate. Okay. So I I do want to make that clear. This is where you pay attention to your kid's developmental level. You pay attention to what they're going to do with the information and you pay attention to how you deliver that information. Right. So the inappropriate way would have been, let's pull up a video and you're just going to watch two people have sex. Right. Like I think everybody would go inappropriate for a five-year-old. Right. Yeah. Right. Like easy, easy decision to make the me drawing diagrams of one parts that my daughter already has. Right. Like shouldn't, shouldn't be inappropriate. Just, just basic sort of knowledge. And then, and then going further, I just, I don't, I don't know how to say this other than to go like there are, there are educational opportunities that you have to capture while you have your kid's interest before it's too late. while also understanding they are kids which means um, they can only handle certain kind of content emotionally, right? And I think that's the difference between is this designed for kids or is this designed for adults? And I think what we do is we go, the information itself is designed for adults. I disagree. Mm-hmm. I think the, we need to design the information for kids, which is what we're doing for, with our books, right? We're saying we're going to design a talk about sex for kids. We're also not going to try and pull punches, but it's not the same kind of conversation that you should have with your 15 year old or with your 25 year old, right? It's like fundamentally different. Um, And with that, I do think there are a lot of topics that would be considered like, I'll I'll be very blunt. We're working on a a kid's book about sexual abuse. Is that book appropriate for every kid? Probably not. But there are some kids, even at very young ages, I would say three, four, and five, that it is appropriate for. What are the scenarios where that book is appropriate? Where they've experienced sexual abuse firsthand? Where there's a parent in their life who they can't make sense of the parent's experience, their behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
helping that parent introduce into into that that kid's life their own experience to make sense of them right because they're already running up against it i think the same is true with alcoholism addiction you know things like that like maybe not for every kid but for kids who need it most it's definitely appropriate tremendous i mean i I definitely think you're in the forefront of having these conversations and 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 it's new and it's fresh and it's different it's definitely different but it, it sounds i'm not a parent yet um God willing, one day. That being said, it's it's that that's the kind of relationship I would like to have with yeah. my kids. Um, grew up in a very loving and supportive home. At the same time, communication wasn't the strongest, you know, uh, ability and and, yeah. and thing that really lasted in the house. So um, it's quite refreshing to hear it. Different, yes, but it's um, it sounds yeah. it sounds a lot healthier. And different for me. Home. Different. I never had it right, so I I don't know what that experience is like for my kids. And I can tell you, even like it's literally my job to make these books on hard topics. And I talk to my kids about hard stuff all the time and it's still hard. It's still hard for me. It's not easy. Yeah. Like, Oh, like I just, I just want to have this conversation. Like it's deeply uncomfortable sometimes. And yet what grown up or parent or teacher or coach out there doesn't believe that having meaningful and important conversations with your kids matters. Everyone believes that, right? 100%. like everyone believes that. So for me, it's about getting over myself and going, my kids deserve better. They deserve, they deserve to have these conversations, you know? Tremendous. So how do you go about um, choosing the, the kind of topics that you're going to bring to bring forth through the kids book about series? Yeah, it ends up being a bit um, helter skelter, if you will, uh, a little bit intuition, a little bit who we find a little bit who we pursue um you know we we do keep like a little bit of a master list of topics that are interesting to us that we think will be important eventually to do and we're always adding to that what's great is our customers they tell us new topics all the time that they want to see and then you know for me it really anchors in finding that one individual who wants to offer that one message down to the next generation sort of it's something that they live and breathe and feel and think it's a thing that they would give a speech on with five minutes notice and do it handily right yeah it comes from first person experience and and grabbing that person for that topic and they're like platforms not a criteria right twitter followers like that that's secondary next to that very deep personal story that that person can inhabit and i'll i'll give you a, a very sort of you know, not great example. When I was looking at, you know, the list of books and I'd written my book, I was like, Oh, it'd be great to do a book on feminism. And I was like, okay, well, like I can't do that book. Cause as, as, as much as I might know, it, it won't ring true, right? It won't ring as true as it can from somebody who's, who lives and breathes that story and has firsthand experience around that topic. Uh, and that was, it was sort of a guiding principle for me as we went out to go find new authors was to go, I wanted to feel like it clicks that much every time around that topic and that author. Got it. Yeah. What, what kind what kind of skill set do you think that you have that gave you the ability to launch this new business of yours? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, in some ways, uh, I'm sort of unafraid to fail. Yeah. Um, All right. And I I think I learned this from sports. You just, you win games and you lose games and you're practicing all the time and you make shots and you miss shots. Like you get so many reps in and quote unquote failure that it just becomes, it's just, 
you don't fear it so much. You sort of see it as, oh, this is a part of the process. Like I won't win all the time, but if I quit every time I didn't win, that what I wouldn't get to play anymore, right? So I, I've sort of taken that into this process of building companies and specifically making these books is going like, I sort of take it for granted that not all of them will be winners. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. But I know trying is, is sort of the key. And that lack of fear actually makes me better at the game. It makes me more likely to succeed and win with those books. And then, you know, at my, at my core, I also am an artist. Um, like I make things. Yeah. Like once upon a time I, I would have, you know, went and studied industrial design and been designing sneakers at Nike. Like that, that was my, that was my lifelong dream. Was that a dream of yours? Oh yeah. Like still kind of is a dream. So just, you know, I keep that under wraps. All right. All right. right. <laughs> All night's a big fan of the podcast. So maybe he'll, uh, oh, I love it. Love it. Uh, so th- for me, I look at it as an artistic endeavor, which means it can't all be business. It's, it's about this idea of creation. And so I try and set up the business itself that supports that artistic endeavor and that artistic inclination that I have to, to make. And even the way we do books, like it's, it's, it's part business, but it's also part, it's the only way that I could make books. Do you know what I'm saying? Like as yeah. an artist, any yeah. other way would feel so uncomfortable and would grade against my abilities that I, I wouldn't excel at it. You know what I'm saying? Totally. And, and that I think touches on another thing, which I, I think you just have an incredible self-awareness of self and also like a high emotional intelligence. Like for those like who don't know, like you're, the process is incredible. And um, I don't, I'm not planning to give away any, any of your trace secrets here. John. No, go for it. Within the first three minutes of jumping on the zoom call with you and your team, everybody's going around getting vulnerable, talking about their stories and going deep about the topic at hand, but also just giving an idea of what, you know, who they are, what they are, what they have to go through to be the person they are today. And it, it just, it's, it's insane. It's the kind of stuff I heard in group therapy. It's the kind of mm. stuff I've, you know, I've heard on like Ted talks when, you know, someone who's just done a whole lot of self work and whatnot, but yeah. here I am with, you know, three, four strangers and we're just yeah. like going at it. And it's, and it's, and it was, it's awesome. It's so, so awesome. And that kind of, you know, process really comes through through the books because it's not just some even professional who's really great at, you know, they have the knowledge of, of the topic at hand, but they're bringing themselves into the book, which has a whole nother dimension to the, the, yeah. the book, the reader, and it feels a lot more authentic and real. Um, yeah. So, but that's, but that's hundred percent true. And I think you found a really fantastic way of balance between business and, cre- and creation and creativity, mm. which usually come sort of, or opposite heads, but you've meshed quite, quite beautifully together. It's uh, yeah. And and I don't know where I got the knack to, for those two things, but I've sort of always had it as an artist, even as a high schooler, I was like selling drawings. Actually, I I can even go back to grade school. I would sell drawings that I did. Um, Wow. Hustling. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, or like get, were you you drawing specific things like from your own or were you taking requests from people? Like, Hey, I want, you know, Oh, I mean, both ends, you know what I mean? Like, It'd, it'd be taking commissions, right? And it was yeah. like, you know, dollar drawings or 75 cents, you know, if you're lucky. Um, or like people always wanted to color my drawings. So I was like, oh, well, that, that, you know, like that costs a little bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I was always doing, mixing those two things. And again, not as like, a, oh, I want to make a bunch of money. It was just trying to understand the relationships between value and, and trading on that and when something's a gift and when something needs to be paid for. Um, but 
but back to the, the workshop process, you know, there were things that we were doing intuitively that I, I, I had to go back and codify to go, why is this working so well? Because it was a bit uncanny mm-hmm. um, to understand why it works so well. And I realized one of the things that we could really lean into was that we would never get an author to really share their deeper, most inner parts unless we were willing to go there too. We couldn't just you know, put them on the slab and open them up and go, you know, thanks. We're, we're in all of our protective gear though. Like yeah. we had to go be there with them. And the moment you did that, it not only created the freedom and the permission, but it, requ- it created the requirement that if the author didn't go there, they would feel uncomfortable about not going there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Totally. Um, uh, I, I, I call it like, it, it's, it's sort of turning up the, the temperature dial of vulnerability. So as we go through our stories individually on, on our team, it's about going there. And I can tell you for my team, it doesn't even feel like vulnerability anymore. It just feels like the thing we always do. Right. You sure. know what I mean? Like so, the office is just like talking about your deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go on yeah. And I, and I realize again, I, I've designed this business around myself and my strengths and my strength is, is to be able to just go there immediately um, without fear I don't know why I have that, but I, I do. And it's part of it. It's just a, it's a, it's a value of how I want to live. Um, and so I lead in that way as well, which is, which is very sort of lack of pretension, a lot of radical honesty, um, as much humility as I can bring to the process and, you know, vulnerability to just go, I don't have all the answers and I know, I don't know all the things, but here's my best shot at it. Right. Which is very unintuitive from a management perspective. <laughs> um, you know, like you're supposed to be the guy who like, runs the tight meeting and knows all the things and like, you know, and keeps people accountable and is slightly threatening. Like that's like, that's like classic business that's stuff. You know what I mean? And yet it's, it's kind of, it's, it's bullshit, right? Like totally. it's not, that's, it just doesn't work, you know? A hundred percent. I mean, whether it's from, from parenting or running a business, you're definitely unconventional. And I think pushing, pushing the boundaries and leading a, a possible, a new way of, of doing things in a healthier and more authentic manner. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Do you, do you vision uh, a kid's book about going beyond just books? Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, so my background before entrepreneurship or really before the last company I started, it was, I was a, I was a filmmaker and a photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that sort of artist background. And I love the idea of getting back to the moving image for, for what we're doing and telling stories in that way. And, I think there's, there's space and there's room for somebody, and I don't mean me, I, I mean mostly our company, to step into the shoes that Fred Rogers left behind, um, to step in the shoes that LeVar Burton left behind with Reading Rainbow, you know, to, to do something that centers around the kid, right? And talks to kids like they matter, like they can handle stuff, like they can, they can think, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't think our generation has that, or at least our kids' generation, they don't have that right now. Not really. They have YouTube. You know what I mean? Like my kids, they look up to YouTubers and as cool and as fine as that is, um, they're typically just watching somebody play Minecraft for a couple hours. Exactly. (laughs) Or doing a toy or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I want, I want more for them. And I think parents want more for them. And I think they want more for themselves. And so the idea is, can you make something as entertaining, as interesting, and as impactful um, 
uh, that centers are, are, are around the, the thing that we're doing. And I, I think that's possible. I, I don't know exactly how to get there, but we have huge ambitions to do that. And then I think audios, you know, my kids love podcasts. My kids absolutely love podcasts. Really? Uh, really? They're plugging yeah. in and listening? Oh, yeah. And they, they refer to, like, they understand the terminology, podcast, seasons, new episode, you know, like, um, wow. like they don't quite understand RSS readers, but we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> um, Maybe but, nine. Okay, they'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and that was because I, I, I started to introduce them to kids' podcasts, kids' narrative podcasts. Um, and every, every time we would drive to school and they would get hooked on it and like we would literally re-listen to podcast stories because they were that good and we also like couldn't listen when one of the kids wasn't in the car because nobody wanted to miss out yeah that's how it was when tv shows used to come on when exactly. we were kids you know what I mean? exactly. and, and now it's like this this shared thing that they can have and and i'm fascinated by this intersection of creating really great content for kids and letting kids participate in that um, and so one of the ideas that we're working on right now is how to create almost like a kids led podcast where the topics and the things that we address and talk about are entirely led by kids and their questions. Wow. That's amazing. All right. Well, I'll be looking out for that. And, uh, Jelani, let me know what is a, uh, a great day for you. What's a great day for me as a day when, I get to wake up at a reasonable time, which nowadays usually is like seven or eight uh, at best. Uh, you know, five is not a reasonable time to me. <laughs> That's when my son usually, you know, will wake up, um, you know, and get to spend an obnoxious amount of time reading a really good book with no end in sight. Like get to stop, start, pick it back up. Um, and then you got to add a walk in there. I'm all about taking a walk, listening to a good podcast in my neighborhood and then spending some quality time with my kids that is, that's unencumbered from, I got to be somewhere. I got to go do something. I got a meeting. I got a call. Um, and then, you know, coupled on that is, is just getting some quality time with my wife. Like we, you know, we're watching like a handful of shows right now. And it's just like, I got her into the twilight zone. Like, Whoa. Oh, it's, it's awesome. Um, and, and then last is when I get in that state where I am comfortable and I, I have all these great inputs of, you know, my kids and my wife and a good book is all of a sudden my mind just like lights up. And it's on fire and I get all these really great ideas. And that's usually right around sort of the nine, 10 o'clock hour. And so the idea of like just getting some time to just think about those ideas, right? Mm -hmm. um, that like, which I, I've just given you like the most in some ways mundane day, but that is my great day. Like that is, that is all I could ask for. You know what I mean? Like that is, that's the pinnacle of days for me um as a as an introvert and a dad of, of six kids <laughs> that sounds like a beautiful day and i bless you to have many many of them well, thank you in the in, in the many years of futures to come so jelani where could people find out more about you and about uh, a kid's book about yeah uh you can find me on twitter at jelani memory um and then you know just uh look up a kid's book about at a kid's book about anything at kidsbookabout.com add a kids book about on instagram a kids book about on twitter just type in a kids book about on any platform on the internet and you will find us first and foremost every time boom all right all right all right beautiful 
Thank you so, so much for jumping on the podcast with me and sharing uh, your story and your insight and your wisdom and your passion. Uh, and I'm really excited to uh, be sharing our project, uh, our book together with the world uh, very, very soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Awesome, brother. See you soon. All right.